Keep America great. I know a predator when I see one. They want to defund the police. I will draw on the best of us. Republicans reject science. Four more years. Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Shepard, President of the United Rural Democrats of America. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm in dead week. I'm like three days away from finishing my semester of school. So just bring it on. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, uh, I, I hope that uh, you're getting all uh, revved up for uh, the end of your semester. Um, now, uh, the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, how did the uh, United Rural Democrats come about? What was the impetus that lay behind uh, its creation? Absolutely. So um, despite being only 19, I've actually run a couple congressional campaigns, including one uh, U.S. Senate campaign where I was driving around Iowa. Uh, I believe I hit nearly every county in about three months last summer in full. And, you know, there's a lot of people who um, are registered Democrats who voted for Donald Trump. And it's not because they necessarily agree with his philosophy on everything, but it's because they feel like the Democratic Party has just fundamentally left them behind. I know um, I'm a political psychology major, or at least that's my uh, specialty. And um, I know in British politics, you have something called the Essex Man, mm-hmm. who is somebody who was sort of left behind by labor in the 70s, felt there was no real reason to vote labor, and then became a, you know, an ardent Thatcher supporter during that administration. And I feel like something similar to that is happening in much of sort of post-industrial and rural America, where the Democratic Party, and I think this was put even further on display in this election, the Democratic Party feels like they have, you know, a certain number of voters sort of in their column. They're all going to be there. And then when they disappear, you know, there's, there's a bit of a problem for them. And that's basically how we got Trump. Because, um, you know, in Iowa, for example, the last person to really speak for rural Democrats or rural people in general was a man named Tom Harkin. And that was well over 30 years ago. So because Donald Trump is the first person to speak to these people, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what he was saying to them. He spoke to them. Um, And we need to figure out how to reach back out because a lot of the problems that they fundamentally face are not going to be solved by Republican politics. That's basically it. Um, You mentioned uh, a shift 30 years ago um, in Iowa. Do you think that it was a specific thing that, or a specific election that shifted the Democrats perhaps away from uh, rural voters? Or do you think that it was just something that happened over a, uh, an extended period and we're now seeing the, uh, the full ramifications of that? I think that's an interesting question because you have to consider the fact that American politics, because just how vast we are, is very regionalized. And, you know, back, you know, before the civil rights movement, you had, you know, liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans. And that sort of political order was very much in flux from like the 1960s to about the time of Barack Obama. And um, I consider, you know, Clinton and Obama to be sort of the the end of that era. So as a result, I would say that um, there's nothing really specific that happened that really changed it. I feel like just kind of the the tides just shifted and this is how it happened. with the rise of Bill Clinton in sort of the third way. Um, I know in the UK, Tony Blair had a similar effect with his sort of like third way, moderate neoliberal policies. Um, It attracted a lot more suburban voters that were, you know, traditionally Republican. 
And while the Republicans have lost a lot of ground in the suburbs in the last two decades, they've gained a lot of ground in rural areas. So I would say that there is no one thing that caused this. And there is no one solution either. Mm. Now, you say that there's no one solution. What do you think uh, is at least part of the solution? Is there some sort of like particular policy uh, that you think that uh, President-elect Biden could implement um, when he comes uh, into power in January that you think would at least begin to to bring uh, rural voters back to the Democratic Party? Or do you think that it's not just going to be one thing, but there's going to be a, needs to be a, a concentrated series of uh, policies and initiatives focused on people in rural states that will begin to bring people uh, back to the Democratic Party? Absolutely. I think, um, well, I think the first thing isn't even a policy, it's just listening. I mean, I, in the process of forming this organization, we now have, I think, almost 60 organizers, something like that. Um, I've talked to nearly a thousand local officials from across the country, over 40 states. And, you know, the one thing they always bring up is that just simply nobody listens. We don't have any contact with anybody. We're basically on our own. So I think the first thing is it's sort of a one size fit all is just listen, you know, go out there, see what the problems are and kind of act on that. Um, at least from a political perspective. And then in terms of policy, I think, you know, two things I would bring up are one, um, universal broadband. Mm. You know, 100 years ago, the government expanded electricity to all Americans. And, um, you know, something I bring up is, you know, people in Tennessee, um, as a broad strokes kind of phrase, are relatively skeptical of the federal government. But I don't see any of them complaining about the light and the water and the power they get from the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was by the federal government. I feel like rural broadband has to be a priority because I was speaking to a congressional candidate out of Indiana and right before the election. And he was lamenting about how an entire year's worth of high school seniors may have trouble getting into college because they're all going to end up fifth year seniors because they can't go to school because the internet is so bad they can't do Zoom school. Mm. So, you know, that's another problem that just simply wouldn't exist if we had a better broadband network. Mm. So that's probably the number one thing I would do. Um, now, from, from what I can gather with, um, as you just mentioned, broadband, there, there seems to be very much uh, an, an emphasis, I, I, I feel, in, in your ideas, in, in terms of the Democrats engaging people in uh, rural states on infrastructure. And of course, um, in the United Kingdom, we had a, a general election uh, last year. And, w- and one of the, the big issues that the Conservative Party uh, brought up in uh, the different seats that they managed to to win from the Labour Party was infrastructure, was spending in these particular constituencies. Do you think that perhaps um, the last Democratic administration, um, President Obama's administration, perhaps overlooked infrastructure spending, and that's why that there may be, uh, you know, th- th- this kind of uh, feeling uh, against uh, the Democratic Party, or do you think that it's just been decades worth of uh, failure to spend on infrastructure? It's most certainly the latter. And it's not just infrastructure in general. Um, There's been, especially since the 1990s, I feel like, but to an extent before then in certain areas, it seems that the Democratic Party has just been seen as sort of a more of a coastal party, uh, more of a party of just, uh, you know, not that, I'll put it that way. Yeah. You know, our, our way of life is not part of the Democratic Party of the 21st century. Um, 
and that you know we, we are no longer needed by them electorally. And I'll just say that for the record, when it comes to infrastructure, every single administration, every single campaign going back at, at least a good three decades mm. has promised infrastructure reform or improvement, but it just kind of falls on the wayside. So um, I bet you that we'll probably be having the same discussion in a few years. Um, now, uh, in the general election, um, in the presidential election, we, of course, um, saw Joe Biden... Uh, flipping states uh, like Georgia. I mean, I know these are slightly uh, contested, but states uh, like Georgia, which had previously been, uh, you know, really solidly Republican. Why do you think there has been this shift in states like Georgia and, um, again, in in other states that uh, shifted from uh, the Trump column uh, to the Democratic column to uh, President-elect Biden's column? Do you think that it is simply voters feeling let down by Trump? Or do you think that is voters who would perhaps have uh, voted Democratic uh, anyway, who just felt more motivated because of the handling of the uh, coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, so I think there are two answers to that one, because I know a lot of people in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, they voted for Donald Trump twice, because even if they didn't agree with his policy or his style, they felt like he was sort of their only representative in Washington. So, you know, when you only got one guy, you got you to gotta protect him. And I think that's sort of why a lot of these like low, low reliability voters who probably haven't voted since 2008 came out this time to vote for President Trump because he's kind of um, cast himself. I don't know how he got away with this as the sort of the defender of the forgotten man. And um, a lot of people have bought into it. And I think it's just because, you know, rural outreach by both parties is atrocious. Now, with Atlanta, I think that's an interesting case because Phoenix and Atlanta are among the fastest growing cities in the United States. So, you know, as Atlanta grows, you know, it's going to overtake rural Georgia electorally. And um, just generally speaking, you know, there are exceptions, but urban areas tend to vote more Democratic for a various group of socioeconomic reasons. Um, and I just think it's, you know, the growth of Atlanta. And um, on top of that, there was also a very strong get out the vote effort in Georgia, led by Stacey Abrams, to try and register new African-American voters, particularly African-American voters, but you know, new voters in general. And I think that really played it out uh, in Georgia, because without that kind of push for new voters and, you know, new clay to sort of build off of, George would have gone to Trump. Do you think, and I mean, we've, we've, we've discussed this uh, way that Donald Trump has projected himself as this um, kind of standing up for the, uh, the, the average American, the, the, the common man, this, this kind of thing. Do you think that part of the reason that this was so uh, palpably um, received by a lot of um, rural Americans is simply uh, the fact that his message was, in many ways, very, very, uh, you know, simplistic. It, it, it wasn't like he was tr- he was trying to project this, um, you know, detailed plan. Do, do you think that that's a problem in terms of communication? That perhaps Democrats aren't getting things out, maybe in a, a, a more sloganistic way that will appeal to uh, people across the board? Or do you think that it's just that the policies aren't there at the moment that people can resonate with? 
I think the one thing I'll say in terms of like the the resonation with voters out there is like I think we have to go another step back. It's just we don't even have any infrastructure out here. Hmm. Uh, political infrastructure uh, in most of rural America is atrocious for both political parties. Um, I can tell you if you go back five years, you know Donald Trump's rhetoric horrified the Republican establishment. Although they kind of fell in line afterwards out of, I guess, some sort of pragmatism on their part. But I think what the Democrats really need to do, or the Republicans for that matter, um, is just kind of go out there, start talking to people, and then start crafting policy based on what they hear. Because I can tell you this, regardless of, you know, if you're the most progressive person in the world or the most conservative, in rural areas, they fundamentally do not like being told what to do by outsiders. And the Democratic Party has this sort of image that I wish they would try and soften a bit, that they know what's best for America and that they're going to kind of prescribe things onto you. Um, and if you look at a lot of the Republican attack ads on Democrats, that's exactly what you see. You see that, you know, the Democrats are going to do all these, you know, terrible, overreaching things. And, you know, we're just going to protect your liberty, even if that means, you know, social services collapse or whatever. So it's this really odd dichotomy to me, at least. Do you think then, um, given those kind of attack ads, that the Democrats need to um, rephrase the way that they talk about things like um, uh, Medicaid for all, uh, healthcare, and, 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 and spreading perhaps more uh, state involvement in people's lives so it doesn't seem like uh, overreach? You- like you're, you, hit the, you hit the nail yeah. on that one. Because it's not just messaging, though. I think, in my opinion, you know, URD's philosophy and or at least the philosophy I put into it, is that we really need to work on the local level. Because once we can see that, oh yeah, uh, this local city councilor or this county commissioner, you know, they're helping rebuild the roads in our town. They're making our town, you know, a better place. They're bringing in new jobs, you know, in whatever power they have there. And then, oh, he's a Democrat. You can work with that because that's, you know, those are verifiable results. Um, I think that if we continue to do that, then we can expand to much larger arenas. But in the meantime, yeah, I think we definitely need to sort of change our messaging a little bit, or at least if we're going to keep it the way it is, sort of tack on top of it, how we're going to make your life better. Because it's not just, oh yeah, they're going to take away your insurance companies, because I do support Medicare for all. Hmm. Uh, That's not a thing my group necessarily does, but I personally do. And I think that, you know, if people know that, hey, you know, would you rather pay, you know, 80% or even 50% of what you pay in medical bills in taxes, then I think, you know, a lot of people might get behind that because at the end of the day, regardless of party, most people are relatively apolitical and just want what's best for their family and by extension, their local community. Uh, Just turning to messaging. Now, of course, um, the group is uh, going to be getting out there and, and promoting Democrats in rural areas. What kind of methods in terms of uh, promoting the message are you going to be using? Are you going to be using more uh, traditional campaign messages, social media? What, what kind of things are you aiming to be utilizing? So if anything is really new about this organization, it's actually how we intend to go forward with this. I call it our national nervous system. My hope is to set up a system where we have across the United States of America, 
literally hundreds, if not thousands, of local, uh, low-commitment organizers who can sort of give us reports on, you know, what the feeling is on the ground at any given time. So I can, you know, give one of my state directors a call, ask them how the people of any given location feel, and within maybe two or three days, I can have a, you know, a little report of, you know, how the people are feeling, here are some good candidates potentially, and then we can go in and support those candidates. Because, like, I was speaking to somebody else who really likes this idea, who said that you're going to need, you know, a thousand voices from a thousand places and a thousand tones to get this moving. And I think that it's best to have all these sort of local contacts that we can assist rather than the organization as a whole, because even though my state, Iowa, is relatively rural, I mean, it's very rural, obviously, <laughs> um, my apologies, um, it doesn't matter because I'm not from there. So if even if my ideas are the best ideas in the world or the worst, uh, people just don't want to be pushed on a foreigner or an outsider. So it's best to have these local people who can sort of pitch in the local, I don't want to say dialect, but I mean, given how vast the United States is, you know, in the local language of the area and use local references and whatever to sort of get that message through. How do you think um, people in uh, perhaps other parts of the Democratic uh, Party, I'm I'm trying not to say Democratic establishment, but uh, perhaps uh, elected officials and... um, members yeah let's let's go with establishment (laughs) members of the democratic establishment how do you think they have reacted to your group do you think have you received positive reactions from them generally well actually um that depends on whether we're talking before the election or after the election (laughs) after the election before the election um a, a rather prominent member of congress's staff um basically told me that this was a very bad idea and that I should kind of go my own way and stop doing this. Um, Obviously, we did not listen to that person because I can say that this election, at least on the congressional level, proves that the Democratic Party still has a long way to go in terms of outreach outside of their core base. And because we've been preaching this message that we need to do better outreach in these areas, and we've been doing it before the election, a lot of people sort of flocked to us. So I would say that many people within the establishment view us either with a bit of guarded suspicion as they view all outside organizations or as a potential ally in helping rebuild these parts of the country. So I, there's kind of two slots for that one. Um, now, of course, uh, in January, we're going to be seeing the um, two Senate runoffs in uh, Georgia. How is your group going to be involved in that? So um, obviously, uh, we're, we're largely based, uh, at least the organizer tier of our group is mostly high school and college age students. So uh, we all can't go just down to Georgia. So we're going to be doing a lot of phone banking, a lot of text banking. Um, John Ossoff and uh, Reverend Warnock both have links where you can just go and text bank for them or um, phone bank for them. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, there's probably going to be about 30 to 40 of us doing. How do you think, um, you know, people will perceive uh, your group, if you are able to uh, contribute quite significantly to candidates in, in more rural areas getting elected, do you think that this is going to in- increase the influence uh, your group has in the Democratic Party? Most certainly, because you have to consider the fact that a lot of people, they won't say it publicly at least, 
but they consider a lot of rural America kind of to be a lost cause. Although if you ask me if any area needs sort of progressive policy, it is probably large chunks of rural America. So, um, you know, because we, we obviously are a relatively new group, we have relatively limited resources. Um, my vice president and I are actually driving from Illinois, which is where I'm um, speaking to you from now, uh, out to Virginia, because Virginia has their local elections one year ahead of everybody else. So the idea is we're going to find, we're going to go out there, meet with people and try and determine who would be good to invest in, who can we support, maybe pick two or three people. And then at the end of 2021, we can say that we flipped this seat, we helped this person maintain a tough race, and there's this one seat out here where the Republicans usually landslide and the guy only lost by 15. Because I think that's kind of how we grow credibility. We have to grow a record that we can do a good job with limited resources. And I'll tell you, I don't know how campaign finance, finance works in your country, but in America, if you're a big congressional candidate, you might scoff at a $1,000 donation. But if you're a state legislative candidate, I don't really care where you are. You're really going to notice that and you're going to use it. So in these local kind of state and even county races, a little bit of money, a little bit of, you know, whatever resource we can provide, whether it's manpower or whatever, that goes much farther than if we're talking about, say, a congressional or senator gubernatorial candidate. So that's kind of how we grow. And if we succeed, we will definitely have the attention of basically anyone in the, actually, I would say we'd have the attention of both parties. Because we have the attention of the Democrats for saying, oh, good job. You did something that we didn't really care about, but now we might, you know, invest more in. And then you also have, um, you know, the Republicans kind of looking at us like, what are they up to? So um, I know one of the first people to actually follow our Twitter was Howard Dean, who's one of my political heroes. Um, he is a former governor of Vermont who ran for president about 15 years ago. You may remember him for mm -hmm. doing a dream that ended his campaign. But after that, he became chairman of the Democratic Party, and he had something called a 50-state strategy, wherein, you know, even if we're not going to win every state, we're going to play for every state. And I feel like that's sort of the mentality the Democrats just need to have. And because we didn't have that mentality this time, we lost a lot of really good members of Congress. Talk about um, investing in um, particular candidates and going out to Virginia uh, and, you know, obviously uh, seeing these candidates and meeting them. Um, what would you say is the kind of tick list? Maybe you don't have it, but if you do have a tick list for, yes, this is a, a candidate that we feel that we can fully support and invest our time and energy in, what, what kind of specifics are you looking for in terms of uh, their particular priorities? So I think, um, and I'll just say it, my group, at least internally, is as diverse as the Democratic Party itself. We have conservative Democrats and we have people who are you know, around the AOC Bernie territory. And um, I think that as a result of that, it sort of shows that, you know, we can sort of manage a wider coalition. And I think the only real sort of litmus test is if we go out and see these candidates, if it's clear they sort of connect with their community in a way that maybe somebody else couldn't, or if there are, you know, other things like that. It's more about sort of resonating with their community than anything else. Because if you can't do that, the rest of it is meaningless. We, um, we endorsed a couple congressional candidates for re-election when we were quite small that some of my more progressive members protested because they are rather conservative. But both lost, by the way. But 
um, they were the only people who could have won that seat. There was a man named Colin Peterson, who is very conservative by Democratic standards. He represented a large swath of rural Minnesota, and he was there for 30 years. He just lost this time around. But Donald Trump carried his district by 30 points, and he, I think, won by five or six. It's candidates like that who can sort of, you know, be men or women of their district. And I think that's the key to winning back these areas. Because if you have somebody from Chicago or Milwaukee just, you know, moving out to Iowa or rural Wisconsin, you know, they're just simply not going to resonate as well. So... I think that's basically how we do it. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been great to speak to you, Joe. And I've got... Uh, w- thank you very much for speaking to us. Uh, I've got one final question. Um, now, the coronavirus has obviously impacted uh, all of our lives, has uh, limited our uh, ability to travel and to, to do other things. So when the virus is, hopefully, uh, as vaccination uh, results coming out of the US seem to suggest, is hopefully... Uh, dealt with uh, soon what one thing that you haven't been able to do uh, at the moment are you most looking forward to being able to do again well I'll tell you actually um, I wasn't expecting to bring this up but um, I was actually in Europe when Donald Trump closed the border so um, my spring began on March 12th and um, I could see I was in the Chicago airport all the flights were being cancelled I was the last plane out to Sweden Um, I was supposed to motorcycle from Finland to Poland throughout my spring break. And I saved up for it. It was great. (laughs) Um, I wake up at 7.30 in the morning, Sweden time. And I see on my phone two hours ago, CNN, President Trump orders the United States border closed, effective immediately. So then um, I kind of spent a couple days scrambling, trying to get home. And um, I passed through London that time as well. And I think that's that's something I really miss. Um, politics aside, I love to travel and um, I'm still young. So I want to see as much of the world as I can while, you know, I'm still able to without, you know, a family or a job. Yeah, yeah. So that's the one thing I miss the most. Well, uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, travel again soon and hopefully you'll be able to, to get back to London soon as well. I'm, I'm sure you'll uh, enjoy uh, uh, going back there. Uh, for- oh, yeah. People um, listening who want to get um, involved in the United Rural Democrats of America, how can they do so? So you can go to our website at unitedruraldemocrats.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at rural underscore united. Obviously, we're a U.S.-based group, so you cannot, if you are not American, financially contribute to us, but we're always looking for other perspectives and other ideas. Because I know that in other parts of the world, different political groups have sort of revitalized rural areas using different policies and different methods. So we're always looking for, you know, new ideas to bring to the table. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast, by the way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Joe. I hope anyone who is interested, make sure that they uh, check out your group. Absolutely. For listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.